Thank you for downloading this episode of The Magpod, a podcast from The Magpie Anthology. I'm Amber Beard, editor, and today I'm talking to Jenny Linford about her fascinating book, The Missing Ingredient. Welcome. Hello. <laughs> so, for those uninitiated, please give us a little pricey of what your book is all about. Right. Well, my sort of revelation about what the missing ingredient was is that actually time, as in seconds, minutes, hours, time, is an ingredient. And in a way, if you think about it, it really is the universal invisible ingredient because when we make food, when we cook food, when we grow food, we use time and in many different ways. So, so I had this sort of starting point of the idea of the book and then the book is structured, it goes from seconds to years and about 70 different essays on different aspects of time and food. So my analogy is that it's sort of like these little essays are like little prisms, you know, looking at this subject of, of time and food. And then when you read the whole book, it's like a kaleidoscope and you get a pattern. It's a book, actually, that you could very happily dip in and out of. And if you wanted to read it in reverse order, it wouldn't actually be a problem, would it? Yeah, that's what I wanted. It was a bit of fun. It was really fun structuring, actually, because I, um, yes, you, you could just read about the things you were interested in. Like, suppose you're interested in steak or cheese or, or stir-frying. You know, all these things are in the book with every little essay is sort of self-contained and would look at those aspects. I've got um, things like The Exactitude of Eggs and Fifty Shades of Caramel and In Praise of Hanging, which is about hanging in yes. meat. And, um, but, but actually it does make a lot of biosis structure really carefully to make sense that if you read it from start to finish, the time accrues as you grow mm. in the book, yes. as, as you read the book. And so, so you sort of feel the weight of time, I feel, by the time you got to the end of it. Absolutely. You have a sense of that, of time, I think. Yeah. And you've talked to some astonishing producers I mean, everything from people who are producing amazing cheeses to port to whiskey to all manner of things. How did you, are these people that you've known forever or did you research them? I was, I was fascinated to know how you interviewed the people that you did because you have a very long history in food writing. And so are these some of these people that you've known for a long time? Some of them were, and I felt um, it was really important because I wanted to put people's voices in the book other food writers, chefs, food producers. So I spent hours <laughs> transcribing interviews. Um, it was a real chore for myself. Yes, my favourite job. Yeah, yeah, it always is. You know, it's a journalist because they, oh, yeah, yeah, they know where you come from. Um, but I, so I wanted people who were really knowledgeable, but also who talked very well. So that, and because I knew a lot of people, I knew oh, this person's great, you know, for some things. But actually, the book is so wide-ranging. Lots of people I didn't know, but I just hoped when I met them that they would be fascinating. Mm. Um, and it was. And it was, it was incredible. You know, so I talked to Pierre Kaufman about how to make stock, and he was incredible. Bear of a man. And, and he's from that generation of French chefs who were making that stock that took, you know nearly a day to make and that that time you know in the kitchen and then the time that that stock would then be reduced to make sauces it's a huge investment of time by in this professional kitchen to then get amazing sauce and that's sort of that's something that's vanishing now from restaurant mm. kitchens I well, wanted him. he was he was quite dismissive about bad stocks and making bad sauces and well, all he of says, those he's young chefs don't make that they don't mm. make sauces that require stock in that way that sort of stock yeah he just really felt that was a lot. And he's also very dismissive of the sous vide because he says it, it's cooking with an... Yeah, he said it's not really cooking as well as I Well, interestingly, <laughs> so interestingly, talking of the sous vide, I, had, um, I have a friend who lives here on the Isle of Wight and he, uh, he has a lovely restaurant called Thompson's and Robert Thompson, and he it was a Michelin-starred chef. And as a big favour to me last Christmas, he sous vided my rib of beef for me and then gave me very serious instructions about how to cook it in a big pot of water, which my husband and son thought was the most hysterical thing ever, me standing there on Christmas Day with the thermometer in my 
my hand, trying to keep it at an even 60 degrees. But I have to say, the meat was absolutely beautiful. And just and I learned something very important about time, as your book quite rightly says, and the methods that if you want to cook properly, mm. actually time is, an, you know, it's not just flinging it into the oven, it's actually taking the time and trouble yes. to do it properly. It's, it's really interesting. I mean, my book was, you know, the idea, I had the idea, and I set out to explore the idea of time. And I didn't set out to champion taking more time for things. So, in fact, my, my point is really it's the right amount of time. So if you're stir-frying, it's, re- it's really, really rapid. You know, that is a rapid process. And actually, restaurants do it better than domestic kitchens because they've got great, big, very powerful gas hmm. burners. So I got to talk to Ken Holm, who's wonderful, about stir-frying. Um, and fish. Uh, Billingsgate School, a fantastic school. The woman there... Um, See, it was, it was, no, I've forgotten. <laughs> it was like the woman who runs it is really articulate about how quickly fish should be cooked. Well, it was because, thirty seconds yes. on each side, which I was astonished about yeah. when I read that. C.J. Jackson, and she's yes. just a wonderful. She's a great teacher and really clear. And she's look, we just overcook fish, and you mm. don't. Need, and actually, one of the things when I thought about writing the book, I thought, gosh, why does fish always cook so quickly? And I wanted to answer that question. Mm. And really, it's so interesting because fish live in water and they support it. It's a supportive environment. And they have a very fragile cell structure because they don't need... You know, we're in the air with gravity pressing down on us and we need bones and quite solid cells. And so that... It really interesting puts that literally that environment. So that water environment means that, that fish, when you cook them, they don't need... In fact, long cooking is disastrous, you know, overcooked. Mm. These very fragile cells. Well, I was astonished at that because I think I'm probably from the school of is it cooked yet when it comes to fish. And I think it's because we're a little bit scared of fish yes, we because we can't see it. Whereas yeah. with a piece of meat, you kind of can see it and you can sort of cut into it and know when it's at the right... Yes, you know. I mean, but you can do that with fish too. You can press, mm. you can touch it. A lot of it certainly goes back to time. Actually, you know, the yes. more you do things and the more you handle things and cooking processes, you learn. You know, mm. it's like I didn't know how to cook when I started when I was a hungry student. And I've been doing this, you know, for decades. And now I'm sort of, you know, I'd say, yeah, I, mean, I can cook. And, uh, but that just took time to learn that. And it's nothing like handling something and then feeling it and seeing it and looking mm. at it and observing it, which I think is probably Kaufman's objection to sous vide is that, in a way, that de-skilling and that simplicity, mm. you know, because actually it allows someone who can't cook to cook well. Yes. And I think that's what he probably is objecting to in a way, which you can see for someone who's spent decades acquiring a lot of skills. Well, absolutely. I mean, th- if you think back to some of the earliest TV chefs of which Ken Hom was one, because mm. I can remember and, and I've never ever managed to replicate any Ken Hom recipe terribly well and I'm sure it's because I overdo it and I think he said, you know, you literally, it's getting the oil really, really hot and putting it, you know, putting the food in and, and doing it in different stages, yes. which I thought was very interesting because yeah. we do tend to bung everything into yeah. a wok all at once. I think there was the idea that stir fries are really easy, which they are in a way but actually but again you know there is a way of doing it well and when, mm. yeah um, different ingredients take different times to cook you know so actually you would you aromatise your oil first with your ginger and your garlic and then adding things you know knowing that this will take longer than that you mm. know and putting your meat and brown it and take it out I mean and browning is really interesting in terms of taking time that's useful and meaningful there are various things I set out to do in the book and one of them was I, you know, I was asked by um, a publisher well, what's the point of a book and I said well if you read my book you'll cook better and I really felt that because you would have learned different, mm. many different things about time and food and the importance of taking time and browning meat for example is something that really delivers flavour results because if you take the trouble to brown your meat 
And by that I mean take your fridge out, your meat out of the fridge um, about half an hour before you want to cook it because that brings up to room temperature so it's not fridge cold because then it goes into the hot pan and it stays hot. Mm. If, if cold meat, really cold meat, goes into a hot pan then it brings the temperature down and then it just starts to stew and gets lots of water out which is not browning. And what you want is to brown your meat and the reason you brown your meat you're creating the Maillard reaction which is this chemical series of reactions actually um, that enzyme reactions that create flavours that we really prize, the sort of savouriness. Mm. So browning, you know, people, you see that instruction, and it's, the temptation is to just do it really quickly and, you know, overcrowd your pan and, you know, do it a little bit. But actually, if you watch a chef do it, they do it really carefully. They do, well, really hot, a few pieces of meat, and it would, and not fridge-curled meat, in at the time, browned, you know, really well, on it, then out, do it again. Mm. So taking that time then, and then that browned meat then goes into a stew or braise where... Basically, you don't have to do very much with it. You're covering, add some stock, add some wine, add some herbs, bung it in the oven, leave it. But you've taken that care at that first stage, and that was going to really deliver results when mm. you eat your stew later. Well, it was interesting because Pierre also talked about browning the bones for stock as well, mm. and, and that you have exactly that yes. same reaction, yeah. which gives you the depth of flavour, yeah. which you don't get if you yeah. just bung, you know, sort of uh, raw bones yeah. into, you know, into a pan. No, it's, um, yes, it's really fun. I mean, it's partly just knowing that these are the times that are mm. worth doing, you know. Um, but it's interesting, the time, what I loved about writing the book was that when you start really thinking, I spent so much time <laughs> thinking about time and food, and it seems, you know, ripeness is about time, freshness is about time, seasonality is about time, but also more emotional things that, you know, that I, I put time travel in the book towards the end in years, because time, of course, is that food has that power to take us back in time. Mm. You know, if you eat something from your childhood, you can yes. be transported back, can't yes. you? And there was also the other thing that you talked about. I, I always had a thing when I was a child where I could smell the taste of something. Mm. So, or taste the yes. smell of something, yeah, yeah, which is, yeah. and, and you but forget. Yes, yeah. and that's mixed uh, total sense. Absolutely. Yeah. And, I, and I can always remember trying to say that to my mother and her saying, what, I don't know what you're talking about. <laughs> it tastes like the smell of. But you're and, absolutely right. No, yes, it is. And, and that's a huge amount of flavour. Yeah. You know, my tongue has got five basic tastes, which is... Uh, you know, salty, sweet, sour, bitter, and umami. Mm. I mean, everything else, everything else is from our, you know, our nose, not from our tongue. Mm. So flavour as opposed to taste. Which brings me on to the story about Tim Peake and Heston Blumenthal, oh, yes. which I thought was fascinating. So if you just yeah. tell that story about him recreating some of the tastes of his childhood. Yes, I mean, that's a really sort of wonderful, you know, example of this emotional power of food, which food obviously does have. So astronaut getting off to space, Heston wants to create something for him that will remind him of Earth, I suppose, and his, and creates really carefully this um, this fish that Tim used to cook when he was a kid. And, and Heston, in a sort of a wonderfully obsessive way that Heston works, you know, gives a huge amount of trouble and obsessively and creates it. And, and Tim just said, yeah, that meal transported me back to my childhood. <laughs> it's a wonderful example of that. Oh, that's astonishing. So who would you say are your... Do you have favourite cooks or chefs? I know that's a d- bit of a Ooh, difficult question. Oh, that's me. <laughs> All my friends. <laughs> I am mini. I am... Yeah, I love... I'm really from a domestic cook background. You know, I'm not someone who worked in a restaurant. I'm not a chef. So I come from someone who, who, who was greedy, basically. I'd say a starting point for being a food writer. I greedy, loved cooking, you know, and... Um, and my sort of heroines initially that, who got me into food writing or made me think I wanted to be a food writer were Jane Grigson and Elizabeth David, the quality of the writing, mm. Michelle Hazan as well. Because I worked in a bookshop as a bookseller before I became a writer and was in charge of the cookbook section, which I was <gasps> loving. That would be my dream. After. That would be yeah. my dream. And when it's funny, when I left to do my journalism <laughs> course, they were like, that's why you had such a great cookbook section. Everyone just really got it because it was like a lovingly intended. <laughs> it was really well stocked. I was mm. proud of it. And then I think they're just wonderful, a lot of wonderful food writers around today. I mean, Nigel Slater, 
you know, Nigella Lawson. Um, you know, there's some really wonderful contemporary people I love. Uh, Rachel Roddy. Gosh, there's so many people. Diana Henry. Mm. Yes, lots. And I think lots of people with wonderful voices now. Yeah. And I think that's one of our great strengths in Britain, actually. We have got this this really rich food writing scene. I mean, this autumn, i just seen some really wonderful cookbooks mm. come out, you know. And I yeah. set up a hashtag on Twitter called Seven Favourite Cookbooks because there was a hashtag mm. called Seven Favourite Books. And then I just... And I literally tweet again, you know, I love cookbooks and I'm not the only one. I'm starting Seven Favourite Cookbooks. And I started pasting and invited some people I knew to join. And they just took off. It's amazing. And mm. I've got a list of all... Someone, not me, because I did not have the time, has lovingly compiled a list. And it's about... 800 different titles. Really? Well, all those books were chosen over and over again by different people. But it was always wonderful for me as a food writer that people chose books that were good cookbooks. Yeah. Because, do you know what I mean? It's actually a cookbook. It touches your life Mm. in such a special way, such an intimate way. And to write a cookbook is actually really hard. And I speak as someone who's done this. And it's a huge amount of work. And recipe writing is not easy. And it was just so gratifying to know the people who'd written really good cookbooks based on real knowledge and they write well and they care about food and they communicate that. These are ones that people love, that touch people's lives. And mm. that was just very rewarding, actually. Well, there's something very... Um, my mum, uh, she had the Marguerite Patton oh, yeah. cookbook, which is what I learned how to yeah, cook from. Brilliant. So how to make cakes yes. and do all the sort of basic stuff. And then I graduated onto Nigella Lawson and Delia Smith yeah, and all yeah. of those, and Jamie Oliver even back yes. in his, you know, yeah, origins, yeah. origins. Yeah. Um, but I must have known, I'm a huge Nigel Slater fangirl because I love the fact that the recipes of and, and actually Yota Ottolenghi as well oh, yes. you know simple recipes with not zillions of things and, and I think if you're a home cook you don't necessarily have the time yeah. uh, to make the stock that takes yeah, a whole course. day because yes. you're you know thing. absolutely yeah. so to have recipes which work for a start yeah. um, because so many cookbooks that are written by you know lesser maybe lesser known people just have recipes that you think well that doesn't only take half an hour that takes at least an hour to cook or no it doesn't take half an hour it takes 10 minutes mm. you know and, and suddenly you're and, and, and I think unless you're an instinctive mm. cook then that makes life quite difficult because people do see recipe books almost as cookery bibles so yeah. it, it, you know it tells me this is going to work and it's going to be cooked in half an hour and without the vagaries of different ovens and yes, different quite. cookers and different yeah. pans and all yeah. of those things that come yeah. into it actually I do tend to go back to the same books time and time again because I know that they work yeah no, which is, I mean, that, that's exactly that. And it's that reassurance, isn't it? I mean, Andelia was a wonderful example of someone who, who empowered people because the recipes were, were so clear and they were, they were very reliable. Mm. And that made people feel confident, you yes. know. And then it's, yeah, and it's funny because sometimes I've cooked recipes from a book and I've thought, ooh, don't think that will work. But I've done it because I wanted to follow that mm. recipe out of fairness and then just wished I hadn't <laughs> sometimes yeah. because, you know, but they take a lot of work. There's a lot of pressure on food writers to produce books very quickly mm. now. I mean, and there are so writers. many of them. Yeah. I mean, yeah. if you think back to, you know, years gone by when there were two or three sort of, you know, fairly well-known chefs, and now there are so many books out there, yes. you know. I mean, I've got a lot of cookbooks. I'm I'm barred, in actual fact, from having any more unless I get rid of some, yeah, so, which is hard. never going to happen. Yeah. So, no, I because I, I like them for various different reasons, you know, when, when you're thinking, oh, I've got some obscure thing that I've grown in the garden or somebody's given me, what shall I do with that? Then it's brilliant to have a whole raft. And I hate looking things up on the internet. Well, I want to... The same thing, I was going to say that. Yeah. That's what lots of people do, they just go, online but actually the quality of what's on in terms of recipe 
quality is really variable. You know, mm-hmm. I would always, if I was going online, I would go to, you know, I would go to Nigella, I would go to Dili, I would go to yeah. a trusted source, someone who really cares about food, who's yeah. taking a lot of trouble, who knows what they're talking about. Mm. Not just some random recipe, because do you believe me, there's some rubbish recipes out mm. there. There are indeed. So. Well, on that note, um, I think we'll, we'll <laughs> leave it there. I would encourage everybody to, to buy Jenny's book, The Missing Ingredient. It's a fascinating book to read. I learned an awful lot from it, apart from the thing about Tim Peake and Heston Blumenthal. And it's a real pleasure to read. And thank you very much for giving us your time. Much appreciated.